Hello, and welcome back to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. It's the first episode of 2023, and I'm excited today to talk with you about the film Chinatown. Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. And of course, in the 49 years since Paramount Studios released Roman Polanski, Robert Town, and Bob Evans's film, Chinatown, nobody has forgotten it. It's inarguably one of the greatest films of all time. It's one of the most representative films of the new Hollywood era. It's a testament to one of the very last times that a major studio run by a maverick figure like Robert Evans would back an iconoclastic director in a naughty, often misunderstood script by a generally unproven writer, and a lead actor who was not yet the massively bankable star he would become in the decades to come after this film. And to come away with a major hit commercially and critically with all of that in the background is remarkable. It's a film that despite having little belief in it from almost everyone involved, frankly. It garnered 11 Academy Awards. It's revered today by filmmakers like Steven Soderbergh, David Fincher, and Kimberly Pierce, all of whom we'll hear from a bit in this episode about Chinatown. So today, I want to unpack a little bit of the context within which it's important to understand Chinatown. We're going to share some anecdotes about the making of the film, We're going to talk, of course, about Jerry Goldsmith's deservedly iconic score. And we'll also talk about the equally interesting but ultimately discarded original score from composer Philip Lambro. We'll talk about the casting of the film, the production design, and much, much more. This is a little of the incredible theme music composed by Jerry Goldsmith who had nine or 10 days to complete this. So much of what's brilliant about this film is contained in this melancholy, atmospheric, dangerous, sexy, languid score. Let's start with the context of Los Angeles because it occurred to me in doing the research for this episode that for all of the cultural importance within the film industry and certainly the agricultural aspect of Southern California, which is so important for all of the food that Americans enjoy, it occurs to me that the history of Los Angeles itself as a city doesn't really ring as importantly, I think, as the history of other American cities does. And I'm speaking about the broader popular imagination or awareness of your average American, which granted is not setting the bar very high in terms of knowledge about our country and our major cities. But if you think about New York City or Philadelphia, New Orleans, San Francisco, even Dallas or Atlanta, certainly Chicago, to degrees, I'd argue, much greater than Los Angeles, I think. The average American knows more about the history of those cities than they do any of the sort of original foundational stories of how Los Angeles came to be. And I and I didn't know much about it until 
really getting into it for this, this episode. And it is fascinating. And as you'll hear, uh, Chinatown screenwriter Robert Town, who was born in San Pedro, uh, is a native Californian. He was equally intrigued by what even he didn't know about the history of his own city after growing up in the 40s and the 50s in Southern California. And that curiosity, in part, would become foundational to his creation of what would become Chinatown. So I don't want to get too in the weeds about the origins of Los Angeles, which is a fascinating topic and a subject for probably many other podcasts. But let's start by just saying that by 1900, Los Angeles had a population of 102,000 people, and it had outgrown its water supply, which came entirely from the Los Angeles River. And the burgeoning city did not have an abundance of the natural aquifers or underground water sources that many other places rely upon, given that Los Angeles is essentially uh, located where the desert meets the ocean. Uh, Felicity Barringer in the New York Times wrote an article and noted that, quote, in an effort beginning in 1905, the city acquired the land and water rights of 1,167 Owens Valley farms, comprising 262,000 acres, for about $20.7 million, which would be the equivalent of about $240, $250 million today. And the reason that the city acquired the land and water rights was because in 1913, William Mulholland completed the Los Angeles Aqueduct, which in its time was considered one of the great engineering marvels. Um, it delivers water from the Owens River, in the eastern Sierra Nevada mountains, which are about 250 miles away from Los Angeles. It's an entirely gravity-fed aqueduct, which brings water 250 miles from the Sierras to feed Los Angeles. And the construction of this was controversial even from the start. Wikipedia says that water diversions to Los Angeles eliminated the farming that was going on in the Owens Valley. And it participated in the growth of the city of Los Angeles because there were clauses in the city's charter which stated that the city of Los Angeles couldn't sell or provide any surplus water to anyone else, uh, which forced the communities and the towns surrounding Los Angeles to basically annex themselves and become part of Los Angeles. So that increases the tax base, that increases the population. Uh, so through the 20s and the 30s and the 40s and beyond, there's tremendous growth in the city of Los Angeles. And in the 20s itself, there was 80% of the movie business located within Los Angeles. And the money that the movie business generated in the 20s largely insulated much of Los Angeles from things that were going on in other cities during the Depression. So you had this period of growth even when other places were uh, just trying to stay alive. For example, by 1930, the population of Los Angeles, which had been 102,000 in 1900, in 1930, it was over 1 million people in just 30 years. That's an incredible growth. And by the end of World War II, the city had expanded further into the San Fernando Valley. And all of this growth, all of this accumulation of power was fueled by water and power and the acquisition and the accumulation and the manipulation of both water and power. Things that are still very much at work and in conflict with each other in today's Los Angeles. 
And a documentary that I cite a lot on the podcast, Los Angeles Plays Itself by the scholar Tom Anderson. He has a section that is devoted to talking about Chinatown. And if you haven't watched this film, which you can get on YouTube, you can pay for it. It's very well worth it. It's a fascinating and essential film documentary. And I will just quote from him in part. He says, quote, Chinatown isn't a docudrama. It's a fiction. But there are echoes of Mulholland's aqueduct project in Chinatown. These echoes have led many viewers to regard Chinatown not only as docudrama, but as truth. The real secret history of how Los Angeles got its water. And it has become a ruling metaphor of the non-fictional critiques of Los Angeles development. End quote. Now, Mike Davis, who just passed away in 2022, wrote a very seminal book about uh, Los Angeles. I think he, he coined the term, uh, he coined a term referencing Chinatown uh, to describe what continues to go on in the Los Angeles development of the 80s and the 90s. So the change in the city was so rapidly uh, encroaching and so apparent to people who'd spent time across the decades there, people like Robert Town, um, who was born, I think, in 1935 or 1937, around the time that Chinatown was set. And he, in one of the featurettes on the iTunes version of Chinatown, and certainly on any DVD version that you get that contains extras, he talks a lot about the origins of the ideas, and there's a bunch of them. I'm, I was going to play it, but it takes so long for him to go through the five different things. But being a writer, he's very good at ticking through the five specific things that led to him having the idea for Chinatown. Number one, at the time he was living in one of the canyons, uh, I think it was maybe Benedict Canyon in Los Angeles, and a developer had pushed through this ridiculous, ridiculously destructive plan that would effectively destroy the canyon where he lived. And he couldn't believe that this had passed through the town council or the city hall. So he went down to city hall to take a look at how this committee worked. And he tells the story about uh, somebody presenting a similarly destructive plan and somebody on the council saying this, this plan is so egregiously insane that I'm going to vote for it because there's no way it'll ever go through. And he couldn't imagine this, this twisted form of logic that people were using to basically agree to compromise their own moral and, you know, judicial centers for development, for money, for power. The second thing was that he went to a beach in Southern California and he realized that the scents and the smells of his childhood in San Pedro, uh, the eucalyptus, the pepper, these, the, the smell of the, the foliage and the vegetation that he'd grown up with, he realized that he was smelling it again as he was just on the, the edge of where the land met the water. And it occurred to him that that used to be what you could smell all over Los Angeles, but that the smells had been gone as the foliage, the trees, the bushes, the grasses, the plants had been paved over and built over. And this contributed a sense of loss, of longing for something that he had once counted on and enjoyed. A third was that he read an article in... Not sure if it was Los Angeles Magazine, but he read an article called Raymond Chandler's L.A., and it featured photographs which were taken at the time, which is about 1970. But there were photographs of things that would have uh, that looked the same as they did in the 30s when Chandler's stories were set. The great noir detective novel writer. And that 
caused him to think, huh, it's still possible in 1970-71 to recreate that era. There's enough buildings left from that specific era of Los Angeles that you could shoot something as a movie and still have it set in 1937. The fourth thing was he encountered a book on a trip to Oregon to appear in Drive, he said, which was a a, a film that Jack Nicholson was directing. And Jack Nicholson and Robert Town had been friends for 15 or so years by 1970. All through Jack, Nichol- Jack Nicholson's struggling years as a TV and B-movie actor. Uh, and on that trip, Town encountered a book called California and Island on the Land. And one of the chapters in the book was called Water, Water, Water. And that caught his eye. And that book contained the story of the Owens Valley Uh, aqueduct and the annexation and all of the things that made him realize that he never considered these things that were right in front of him. Water, water coming out of a tap, Uh, the Los Angeles riverbed paved over, that these things were actually incredibly important to the reason for Los Angeles even existing. And that in a way they were kind of crimes or at the very least, morally suspect. And the fifth thing was, he got a dog from a breeder who turned out to have been a former vice cop in Los Angeles, Chinatown. And Robert Town asked this cop, so what did you do when you were a cop in Chinatown? And the guy said, nothing. And Town said, what do you mean nothing? And the guy said some version of what Nicholson says in the movie, which is, yeah, that's what our commander told us to do as little as possible. And Town said, why is that? He said, well, because we have no idea what's going on there. We are so far outside uh, the tongs and the societies that govern this small section of Los Angeles that we don't know if we're helping people commit crimes or preventing them from committing crimes. And so that stuck in his mind. Those five things, if you think about it, are all apparent as you watch through Chinatown, which I hope you'll do after you listen to this podcast. And the other thing that Town always mentions when you hear him talk about Chinatown is that it's about the futility of good intentions, which is going to become important as we get into the Jake Giddies character, Nicholson's portrayal, and the events of the film. So that Southern California history is a bit of the background. Now, the other background important to the making of the film is this social scene in Hollywood of 1970, 1971, which involves Robert Evans, Robert Town, Jack Nicholson, Roman Polanski, and others. Um, You can watch films that we've talked about on the podcast, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which fictionalizes the Manson murders, Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, who was pregnant at the time with their child, was murdered by the Manson family on Cielo Drive, Um, this drove Polanski from Los Angeles and just a couple, two, three years later, Evans and Nicholson and town are all kind of conspiring to bring him back to direct Chinatown. Polanski had a reputation for being a, a artistic director of taught thrillers. So Rosemary's Baby, which we've done on the pod, it's a great episode with Ted Jessup. Please check it out. That features a lot of the same behind the scenes people, Robert Evans, uh, Dick Silbert and his sister-in-law, Anthea Silbert, as a production designer, costume designer. 
So once Town has this admittedly overstuffed screenplay, which his first draft was, uh, Evans, who's a colorful character in his own right, you can watch The Kid Stays in the Picture for more Bob Evans. Uh, He is ascendant at this specific time. Charles Bludorn, who is uh, the improbable owner of Paramount, Starting from, you know, kind of an auto parts background, he acquired various companies, which led to the accumulation of the studio. In addition, he put Robert Evans in charge of the studio, which a lot of people thought was ridiculous because he was too good looking. He was an actor, unforgivable sins in a studio head, apparently. But Evans had something. He had it. He famously battled Coppola during the making of The Godfather, which you can hear about in our Godfather episodes. He made an enemy of Coppola at the end of The Godfather by claiming credit for saving the film in the edit room, saving Coppola from some of his decisions in terms of the score. And he would do the same with Polanski at the end of this film, which we'll talk about in the final section of this episode. But at the time, Evans had an incredibly unique position that he was able to talk Bluedorn et al. into giving him, which was that in addition to being the head of the studio, he also had a production deal which allowed him to make one film per year that he wanted to make, and the studio would cover all of the costs associated with the making of the film. So unlike other producers in town, unlike other studio heads in town, he had the ability to do something that he wanted to do, and because he was the head of the studio, no one could tell him otherwise. And that would prove to be very important in the making of this film. So a protracted process began where Evans tried to get Polanski interested. And Polanski at the time wasn't really interested in coming back and working in Los Angeles. The events of 1969, the death of his wife and his child would haunt him. They would spur spur him to uh, a time of personally suspect behavior sexually, which we'll also talk about, which he's probably most well-known for at this point. Uh, but before that, this is this, this era of making this film is before that event happened in the hot tub at Jack Nicholson's house in 1975. But in 1970, 1971, 1972, they're talking about Chinatown. And a process unfolded where Evans put Robert Town and Polanski together for six weeks in Los Angeles and told them, hammer out a shooting script. Because Robert Town's script was had so many different things going on. There were there was an affair between Evelyn Mulray, played by Faye Dunaway, and the Escobar character. There was all this other stuff going on. And Polanski, uh, really to his credit, uh, had a very sharp eye for what could be excised. And I think has a lot of responsibility for the script that emerged from this process. Um, He says so himself in some of these making of featurettes. Town is a little bit more cagey, but he's always been a little cagey about credit. Um, One of the sources that I really enjoyed reading is Sam Wasson's book about the making of Chinatown called The Big Goodbye, Chinatown in the Last Years of Hollywood. And Watson is a bit of a purple prose writer, and it took me some time to get into this book. But once it gets going about the making of, it's invaluable, and it's very, very good about the aftermath. And we'll talk about that at the end of the podcast. 
Polanski gives credit to town for all the signature dialogue and the perfect use of Nicholson's personality in the writing for the Giddies character, because he'd known, as I said, he'd known Nicholson for 15 years. He had a perfect handle on Jack's personality, on the anger that was just below the surface, the winking asides, the charm, the sense of, of moral seriousness and passion, the friends as family uh, because of Nicholson's own complicated, troubled upbringing. All of these elements that would be so wondrously displayed by Nicholson in, I think, what has to be considered among his greatest and most complete screen performances, if not the greatest and most complete. I have a couple of caveats with it, which we'll talk about later. But basically, Roman didn't want to do this job. He didn't want to come back to Los Angeles. And he describes it in the making of materials as something he took merely as a job, not as a passion project. But he realized that he had a rare opportunity to be fully protected by the head of a studio and to work with friends because that was something that he remembered fondly from his time in Los Angeles in the late 60s. So he'd known Dick and Anthea Silbert. He'd known Jack Nicholson. He'd known Robert Town. He knew all of these people that would be working on the film. And uh, Evans was his protector, but as we said... At the end of the production, Evans would uh, attempt to take credit for the film, as he did on The Godfather, and it would harm his relationship with Polanski, just as it did with Coppola for many, many years. Coppola famously winning Oscars for The Godfather 2, which I think won all of the awards that Chinatown was up for in the 1975 edition of the Academy Awards, pointedly did not thank Robert Evans from the stage. The winner is Francis Ford Coppola for the Godfather I almost won this a couple of years ago for the first half of the same picture. That's not why we did the Godfather Part Two, however. Uh, it was Charlie Bluthorn's idea, and when I heard it, I said at first, my God, to do a sequel to The Godfather is a surefire way to fail and blow everything I was lucky enough to get up to that point. And then I went home and I thought about it and I realized that because it maybe was such an easy way to fail, which was probably the best reason to try to tackle what seemed so impossible. And uh, it's, uh, I'm really happy I did. I, I just want to thank uh, Gordy Willis, who was the photographer, who did a beautiful job. And Barry Malkin, Barry Malkin, Richie Marks, and Peter Zinner, who cut the picture, who, who, uh, who all contributed, and Walter Murch, who did the sound. Thank you so much. And thanks for giving my dad an Oscar. Thank you. So there was all that. But before that, we and they headed into the production of Chinatown, which by all accounts was a really magical and wondrous time for everyone involved, except perhaps for Faye Dunaway. But we'll talk a little bit about uh, her experience on the set and her performance, which is astounding, astoundingly good to watch her. And I think anyone, and, and Nicholson says this in one of the making of featurettes that, you know, listen, that this was her process and we all can get carried away. I've gotten carried away. Roman can get carried away. Um, was it difficult? Yes. Uh, was she, did she have a certain need to take time between takes that drove Roman crazy? Yes. But it's hard to argue when you watch the cut together performance that whatever she had to do, whatever Roman had to do to get that performance, it's 
it's a worthy performance. She should have won an Academy Award. Uh, and the other thing that was going on as the film was being produced was that the Watergate hearings were being televised. We are beginning these hearings today in an atmosphere of utmost gravity. The questions that have been raised in the wake of the June 17 break-in strike at the very undergirding of our dem democracy. If the many allegations made to this date are true, then the burglars who broke into the headquarters of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate were in effect breaking into the home of every citizen of the United States. And if these allegations proved to be true, what they were seeking to steal was not the jewels, money, or other property of American citizens, but something much more valuable, their most precious heritage, the right to vote in a free election. So it's hard to underestimate how much this riveted the attention of many, many Americans, and certainly everyone in Hollywood was going home at the end of their workday and turning on the television and following these hearings. And the elements of this would intentionally and unintentionally slip into the wider public understanding of Chinatown's meaning, its reception. Uh, it's the most foundational American corruption story. And it's, in its own way, exactly what Chinatown is about in a smaller way. So onto the production. One of the first things that happened when the production commenced was that Evans began to have a problem with the cinematographer Stanley Cortez. He's a very old school, classic Hollywood, brilliant cinematographer. In addition to being the wrong look for a picture like the ones that Evans imagined, he was also taking too much time with his setups for Polanski. So Evans instructed Polanski to make a change and Polanski looking at all the available directors of photography who were able to start basically the next day, because that's what we were talking about here. They couldn't delay the production. I mean, the person had basically a weekend to get up to speed and then begin work again on Monday. He selected John Alonzo, who had done a lot of work in documentaries. And Roman believed that that work would be an asset with the relatively simple but very painstakingly composed frames that Roman envisioned using. He was going to be shooting in the Panavision format, which is a widescreen format with anamorphic lenses so that things are in uh, focus throughout the entirety of the frame. You can, you can fill this frame with tremendous amounts of information. And Polanski's signature brilliant cutting of two-hand conversation scenes is one of the most amazing things to watch when you watch this film again. Anytime you have two people in a difficult or convoluted conversation, stop down and pay attention to that in the movie because the way he uses this widescreen frame to do things that evoke emotional and psychological responses in you as a viewer are things that you might not really be aware of at the time. But the way that he's cutting and using these things is so psychologically brilliant and it's it's simple, but it's informed. And you're going to hear Soderbergh talk about that a little bit later on in this episode. And of course, as we've mentioned many times on the pod, in addition to the writer and the director and the producer and the stars and all of the people that go in, it's the production designer and particularly the costume designer in this case. And that's the Silberts. It's Dick Silbert and his sister-in-law, Anthea. Richard was the production designer probably the greatest of his era, maybe the greatest of all time. And Anthea, whom Jack called Ant, given his penchant for nicknames, she handled the costume design, but did so much more than that in terms of 
what Nicholson talks about is a sense of style that he learned from her about clothes, the importance of details like the number of keys that a character would keep on the key ring in their pocket, or what type of cigarette case they'd use. Things that only the actor might be aware of, but that she believed contributed something important to the sense of who the actor was portraying. So you have a team of extremely competent people, all at or arriving at the pinnacle of their skills, experiences, and abilities, and they're friends. They're working together under the protection of their producer, who also happens to be the head of the studio. It's an incredibly rare moment to have all of these things working for you. It's an ideal situation for the flourishing of the right kind of creative energies and efforts. Fincher, David Fincher, does the commentary track alongside Robert Town on the iTunes edition of Chinatown. And it's such a great choice. It turns out at first you're kind of like, huh, why didn't we get someone else? Um, But of course he truly gets and appreciates this film. And if we lose a little something because his sort of ruthlessly directorial uh, one track mind doesn't really leave a lot of room for other interpretations of things or moments in the film. Uh, it, it does point out so many of the subtle genius things that are going on. And in this track, he talks that he he says that a truly great movie can only happen when a group of people cross over and achieve their potential for a three month period. And it all comes together. And that's what happened. So if you look at this film again, the propping, the production design, all of the interior locations were built on a soundstage and all of the exterior locations are real. So everything in the office, in Mulray's office, in the water company, the the research library, uh, all of these things are so meticulously put together. These these big wide books that Nicholson is leafing through, um, Everything is handwritten, different, different types of penmanship, different inks, just so much work that went into the realism with which this is portrayed. And it, it contains that, that sense of class in Los Angeles. It, it reminds you that even in the 20s, in the 30s in Los Angeles, people of means really knew how to live. And I think this comes from the origination story of the movie business where you have cultured Europeans coming to Los Angeles, coming to America, coming to California, and bringing with them a certain European awareness of how to live well. And so the homes are of a different sort than anywhere else in America, really. Um, The indoor-outdoor living, uh, the beautiful furnishings, it's just, it's part of the whole kind of sybaritic, decadent lifestyle that permeated certainly the film and movie business and would percolate down and sour into a curdled stream that led to the types of debauchery and depravity that we see referenced in movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Damien Chazelle's Very Unfortunate Babylon, which I had the misfortune to sit through the other day. I'm not going to get too into details there, but uh, Day of the Locust, which was incidentally filming on the lot at the same time that Chinatown was being filmed, as was Godfather 2. So this is kind of what was going on 
in the movie business at the time. And this is what was going on on the back lot at the time. So one of the most amazing things about the film itself are some of the choices that Polanski made, um, which, again, these are things that, you know, I wasn't even really aware of having seen the movie a bunch of times until it's pointed out to me. But, for example, one of the things to watch for is that the POV of the film is always with Giddies. We never see or know anything that Giddies doesn't yet know. So there are no scenes of backroom dealings that take place without the Giddies character present so that we, the audience, know where the mystery is going before Giddies does. Um, even in a scene like the scene in the first half of the movie after Mulray is found dead, when Lieutenant Escobar is questioning Evelyn, his widow, in another movie, this is a scene that would happen outside the POV of the detective. But here, because of the Panavision format, because of the anamorphic lenses, you can have action going on in the foreground of Escobar talking with Evelyn Mulray in his office. And in the background, you can see Giddies sitting in the hallway. So that even this scene takes place within the Giddies POV. And it's, it's incredible um, to, to really note how rigorous this is uh, maintained and applied through the history of the film. Because when you start noticing it, you realize how complicated and um, how, much a th- how much forethought and attention is required in order to uh, maintain this ruthless uh, adherence to something so specific as this POV. And I wanted to play a little bit of uh, what Fincher says in the commentary track about uh, this, this use of POV and how people understand or misunderstand uh, POV accordingly. Most people think of subjectivity as being the point of view of the character. And yet, by stepping three feet back from the point of view of the character, you actually create more subjectivity because you get to experience it at the same time that the person who's on screen experiences it. That's true. And Jack actually has a really good back for this. Yeah. <laughs> That's Robert Town speaking uh, at the end there. But what Fincher's talking about is when you watch the film, there are so many shots where Nicholson is two or three feet in front of the camera, and we are looking over his shoulder as he is exploring something. And this is such a subtle difference to a film like Zodiac, which we just did, the reverberations of that film and how intensely I got into that film are still circling out from that episode, like waves from a pebble tossed into the waters of the FCAC podcast lake here. Uh, But there's a direct connection to Chinatown because like Zodiac, the story in Chinatown, the story that's being told is so complicated and the viewer has to follow it along this complicated path that if you engaged as a director in any tricks or flourishes or style, really, overt style for style's sake, I think the viewer would be lost. So the scenes are framed pretty widely, and they are 
apparently simply played out, but that's not to say that the framing is anything but masterfully composed. And again, here I get to tell my favorite film anecdote of all time, which is found audio here of cinematographer Billy Fraker talking about the time he was working with Polanski on Rosemary's Baby. And Roman had a very specific framing in mind that Fraker didn't understand. I don't let you go to no Dr. Hill nobody ever heard of. The best is what you're going to have, young lady. Where's your telephone, huh? Uh, it's uh, in the bedroom. There's a, a shot in Rosemary's man. Baby. It says, where's the telephone? Oh, sit down. And Mia says, in the bedroom. And Ruth says, oh, good, and she exits. Roman says, Billy, can give me a POV of, uh, of Ruth. And I got him framed perfectly. Beautifully see her on the phone talking. I said, okay, Roman, we're ready. And he comes over, he looks, he says, no, 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 Billy, no, 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 Billy, move, 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 move the left, move the left, and kindly move. And I look through, and I see just the back of Ruth Gordon seated on the bed. And he can't see her face or see the talk to him. I said, but you can't see her. He says, exactly. I said, oh, okay. So now we go to the theater. And 800 people in the theater all go to see around the door jam. That's Roman Polanski. He was contributing a collective experience in the theater that he was smart enough to know would happen. And this is the type of intelligence with which Polanski was putting forth all of his ideas for how Chinatown would be shot. The use of the lenses, the Panavision. Another thing that happened was when they first got some of the dailies back, uh, Evans had the film treated and darkened because, you know, what did The Godfather look like? It was so saturated with blacks and it was so dark that Roman was looking at these dailies and they were all kind of tinged darkly red. And he said, what the hell is this? And Evans said, oh, I thought that would help, you know, and and Polanski threw a fit and Evans, to his credit, you know, walked it back and they reprocessed the film uh, the appropriate way. And this use of both simple straightforward setups, but also then breaking the laws, quote unquote, of uh, conversational scenes, for example. So the closest that we come to breaking some of these POV rules that Polanski had in place is there's this amazing scene between Noah Cross played by John Huston and Giddis at Cross's ranch, which is just another one of the most amazing locations. And Polanski shoots this conversation in a pretty static two shot. We're across the table. Noah crosses on our, as on the left of the frame and Giddis is occupying uh, the middle, the right side of the frame. And they're having a conversation. Now there's a point in the conversation where Nicholson hits cross with some information that cross doesn't know that Giddis knows. And when we do that, Polanski suddenly reverses the shot. So now we're on the other side of the table and we see Nicholson's back and he's not facing the camera as he's, as he's asking questions, but Noah Cross has gotten up from the table and in a neat bit of telegraphing evasiveness, uh, just as Giddy's bears down into these important details that he knows about Mulray's death that Cross doesn't know that Giddy's knows, the conversation is now being shot from behind where we just were. And if you listen to Fincher on the commentary track, he's like, 
that's insane. Like that's like, oh, you just don't do that. Like it's confusing. But what it means is that the Noah Cross character's face is now the, we're seeing his face in a moment where he's not being observed by Giddies because Giddies is still seated at the table and he's now facing away from Noah Cross. And you watch this scene. It's a little complicated, I know, to have me describe it. But when you watch this pivotal moment in the film, uh, we don't see Nicholson say these damning words because the camera is framed onto Nicholson's back, but we see the effect of those words on John Huston's face. It's, it's incredible. Here's a little of that, that interplay between the two of them. Do you remember the last time you saw Mulray? Uh, my age, you uh, tend to forget. It was five days ago outside the pig and whistle and you had one hell of an argument. I got the pictures in my office. Of that. That's, that's the moment where John Houston's face falls as Noah Cross because he doesn't know that Giddis knows that. That'll help you remember. What was the argument about? My daughter. What about her? Just find the girl. So that's such a freighted answer. My daughter, uh, as you'll see, it comes to mean several. It has two meanings, doesn't it? In the context of the film. So it's it's an incredible sequence here. And this is just one of many two handed conversations in the film, which is why I was saying keep an eye out for those, because it's so seamless. And when you pay close attention to it, I think it's such a rewarding thing to be aware of how he's controlling the flow of information. Another thing is there's maybe only two zooms in the whole movie. And I think there's one in Ida Sessions' apartment, and there's maybe one with the great Burt Young, who is looking at photos of his wife in flagrante delicto with someone else that Giddis has procured in following the wife who the Burt Young character Curly believes is having an affair. And it's... It's kind of crazy in a film of this scope and size and length that you really don't have a lot of extraneous camera camera zooms. Another thing that's interesting is the way that this film kind of plays with, plays by, and also blows up the conventions of the noir detective story. So we have Evelyn Mulray, the femme fatale. She's got the red nails, the red lipstick the marcelled hair um, in a typical noir detective film. She's the killer, right? She suckers our hero, our world witten, our, our world weary, hard bitten detective character. She seduces him. She maybe causes him to get enmeshed in a cover up of some sort, but you know, she's the bad actor. She's the one who is at the center of this conspiracy that she portrays herself being the victim of. But in Chinatown, that's upended. Um, she is not the femme fatale. She's not the, uh, she's not the protagonist of the murders that occur. She is the victim. And we're going to play a little bit later the most famous scene in the film. Uh, she's my daughter. She's my sister. She's my sister. She's my, she's my sister and my daughter. We're going to see how that's such an important moment in, in what I was just talking about. What's also interesting is that the secret for this mystery that we've gone along on, it's right in front of Giddy's in the almost at the very beginning of the film. 
right? It's the glasses in the tide pool at Mulray's house, which he notices the very first time he goes there to try and uh, confront Evelyn Mulray and say, listen, you know, someone portrayed you and suckered me into this. Don't sue me. Let me let me get to the bottom of this. Like the answer to the whole mystery of the film is is presented to us. Of course, we don't know it yet, but it's right in front of Giddies the whole time. And the world of J.J. Giddies is so seductive, I think, especially to men, because it's just this time and the way it's presented with these incredible suits and hats and shoes and driving around in these amazing convertible cars in the golden hour of Southern California, reading the racing form and the red leather banquettes at restaurants with Tom Collins's in front of you and you, you're smoking unfiltered cigarettes that you fish from your sterling silver cigarette case and that you light with your gold lighter as white jacketed waiters take your dining companions drink orders and she's having a Tom Collins too. It's just the, the whole thing is such a male fantasy of presentation and power. And yet, because it's Polanski, there's a jaundiced eye that's looking at this world of men and what men do in pursuit of knowledge and power. There's going to be a lot of irate citizens when they find out that they're paying for water that they're not going to get. Oh, that's all taken care of. See, Mr. Gibbs, either you bring the water to L.A., or you bring L.A. to the water. How are you going to do that? By incorporating the valley into the city. Simple as that. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Now, where's the girl? I want the only daughter I've got left. As you found out, Evelyn was lost to me a long time ago. Who do you blame for that, her? I don't blame myself. See, Mr. Gitz, most people never have to face the fact that at the right time and the right place, they're capable of anything. And it makes it all the more Shakespearean what would happen to Polanski, because he sort of is caught up in his own tragic personal history of loss with the Holocaust. He was a child of the Holocaust. He lost his mother. He saw it happen. He, he saw atrocities. Um, and that formed some fundamental aspects of his personality. And I think also, as you read the history of other people involved in the film, you know, growing up in the, being born in the thirties and growing up in the world war II era, it had a lot of traumatic impact on people. And it's not an excuse, but it's part of the complete understanding I think you need to have uh, when you're looking at someone like Roman Polanski and what would happen to him, what he would do, the mistakes that he would make, the crime that he would commit, and how it would alter the course of his life and other people's lives forever uh, in pursuit of something that is tied for him in this personal history of loss, not only in his experiences growing up in the Holocaust, but the murder of Sharon Tate and their child. We have a 
weird homicide. In a scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird religious rite, five persons, including actress Sharon Tate, were found dead at the home of Miss Tate and her husband, screen director Roman Polyansky. Miss Tate, who starred in Valley of the Dolls, was eight months pregnant and was found in a bikini-type nightgown with a rope around her neck attached to the body of a man. Two bodies inside, two bodies outside. Among the other victims were Hollywood hairstylist Jay Sebring and coffee heiress Abigail Folger. Authorities would allow no one in an unofficial capacity inside the posh $200,000 home in the hills overlooking Los Angeles. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines cut. The bodies had been dead about 12 hours. They were discovered this morning by a maid who ran screaming to neighbors. One officer summed up the murders when he said, In all my years, I have never seen anything like this before. Um, and the unimaginable center of this storm that that caused him to be in. And what was going on in the United States, like these hippies, both the ones from the Manson family that committed the crime, but also people looked at at Polanski and Sharon Tate and their scene and they thought, well, what were they doing that deserved this, right? They're promiscuous. They don't play by our rules. Uh, this is what happens. This was all going on, right? Oh, he makes, these, he makes dirty movies where, where this kind of thing is encouraged. So there's all this fascinating backstory stuff to what was going on, but... Roman himself is so capable of doing anything, as Noah Cross says in the film, right? He proves himself capable of doing anything faced with the right circumstances and being in the right place in the time. But what's amazing is that Giddies's actions in the film cause Evelyn Mulray to die. He, he botches the whole thing. He's, his too confident belief that he's five steps ahead, as Kimberly Pierce says in her astute comments on this film in the in the making of featurette he thinks he's five steps ahead but he's really five steps behind the entire time and this is all revealed in so many of the great choices that polanski makes in directing the film another interesting thing about it as you watch it is that all the big dramatic reveals really until the final scene which obviously takes place in chinatown but all the big evil is taking place in broad daylight when they find Mulray's body, uh, it's broad daylight. When Giddies and Noah Cross are having lunch, it's broad daylight. When Giddies is driven to see Noah Cross, who's the axis of evil in this film, it's broad daylight. It's not seven, to name check Fincher. It's not a dark, rain-dripping, horrific, nightmare location set type of lurking evil. This is the evil that people in power have the confidence to enact in full view of everyone, in broad daylight, and even legally. And that's part of the emigre look at American society, American political power, that Polanski as an outsider is bringing. It's the same thing that he brought to Rosemary's Baby, the Ira Levin novel, pulpy kind of novel that it was. Well, in Polanski's hands, it turns into this brilliant sort of satire of a certain slice of New York City life. And that's the, the tragic irony of the Polanski vision is that he's such a skewerer of male peacockery. And yet he's such a practitioner of it himself in his private life at the time. And the, the cost for the young victim who 
he was taking art photos of in Nicholson's hot tub in 1975 and on his career and on his life and the limitations it's placed on his ability to really only move between three countries. He cannot come into the United States. Uh, this is ongoing. This is still going today from something that occurred in 1975. It's a tragic figure type thing of his own doing. And whether he's in control of his impulses or not, it's, it lends this Shakespearean element to his own, his own personal story. So there's so many iconic scenes, of course, um, that we have to talk about. I think as a kid, when I saw the movie the first time, the only thing I remember taking away was... Hello, Claude. Where'd you get the midget? We slit their noses. You're a very nosy fellow, kitty cat, huh? You know what happens to nosy fellows? Huh? No? Wanna guess? Huh? No? Okay. They lose their noses. It's, it's still such a effective gag, as they say in the movie business. The stiletto knife that the character played by Roman Polanski, who's the one who slits Nicholson's nose, caught snooping around the water. Um, it's such a simple and effective gag. And I don't think we'd seen anything like that in the movies, uh, in, at least in this type of a movie. Maybe in sort of a B movie, you might have seen some some gory, janky effects. But this effect is so well done. And it's funny how it was accomplished. Um, the knife that Polanski uses, while a real stiletto, it had a breakaway blade that only bent one way. So he would insert the blade into Nicholson's nostril. And as he pulled it toward him, the blade would break towards Nicholson's face and thus not cut him. And at the same time, Polanski had to squeeze a little bottle attached to the back of the knife, which you can't see in the framing. And that would, sh that would shoot the blood right onto the blade. And it's so simple and it's so effective. And I think that's one of the things that so many of us took away from this film at the time. It kind of, it makes me laugh a little bit how, how little it took back then to uh, really get us um, sort of titillated and talking about something that we might not have seen on screen before. So that's an amazing scene. And then, of course, it's such a great Polanski touch to have Jack, Jack Nicholson, this, this would-be great-looking movie star, and basically have him spend the rest of the film in a diminishing series of gigantic nose bandages. <laughs> this is just another thing that just wouldn't happen today. Um, I think actors are always willing to ugly themselves up. It's kind of a reverse vanity. But... The way that Polanski uses humor, the reveal of the bandage right after this scene where Giddies' associates are just looking at this giant cotton monstrosity and shaking their heads. It's brilliant. And of course, the other most iconic scene is the reveal that Giddies finally is able to wrest from Evelyn Mulray about Catherine, her sister, who her husband had been having an affair with. And it's also so important to the film that this crucial final bit of information doesn't come out until Giddies has to shed this armor, this costume that even he is wearing, right? 
of I'm too cool for school. I don't lose my cool. Others may lose their heads around me, but I'm going to always remain in control. Well, it's only when he's exasperated and cannot for the life of him stand any longer that she's continuing to lie to him in his estimation that he gets violent and in getting violent with her, that's the only way she's going to reveal this information because the information is so horrific that it can't come out of her conversationally. So it's this incredible moment that's fraught and it's, it's, it's an astounding moment to watch captured on film and to have Nicholson and uh, Dunaway do what they had to do. He's really hitting her. And she said, you know, the only way this is going to work, you're really going to have to slap me three times. And it's an incredible scene uh, that you're going to want to watch closely. I found these in your backyard in the pond. These are the they glasses. Belonged to your husband, didn't they? Didn't they? I don't know. Yes, probably. Yes, positively. It's where he was drowned. And even here, just to stop down for a second, he's presenting her the glasses that he found right in the very beginning of the movie. He saw them in the, the title pond. But right now, he still thinks that they belong to her husband, Mulray. But we don't, what we don't yet know, uh, but what you will know if you've seen the film, is something that Faye Dunaway knows, her character knows. And in this moment, silently, you can watch this awareness flit across her face so dramatically. She knows it's not, those are not Hollis's glasses. Those are her father's glasses. Okay. And that is part of what uncorks the bottle here and allows the rest of this to play out. What? There's no time to be shocked by the truth. The coroner's report proves that he had salt water in his lungs when he was killed. Just take my word for it, all right? Now, I want to know how it happened, and I want to know why, and I want to know before Escobar gets here, because I don't want to lose my license. I don't know what you are talking about. I, this is the craziest, the most insane thing. Stop it! I'm going to make it easy for you. You were jealous. You had a fight. He fell. He hit his head. It was an accident. But his girl is a witness, so you had to shut her up. You don't have the guts to harm her, but you got the money to keep her mouth shut. Yes or no? No! Who is she? And don't give me that crap about your sister because you don't have a sister. I'll tell you... I'll tell you the truth. Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister and my daughter. Okay, and I also want you to listen for the ticking clock that is on the soundtrack behind the scene. God, please go back. For God's sake, keep you her upstairs. Go back. That's so fascinating to me because earlier in the film, when the two characters finally get together uh, romantically, 
there is also this incredible ticking clock in the background, uh, which is so interesting. It's, is it Polanski signaling, as he so often does, that uh, sex, the pursuit of sex, is the mechanism but which has been set in motion irreparably, irretrievably, something in the past time, time will not stop the, the events which these unions, unholy or holy, have set into motion. So in the two scenes directly related to sex, one in which Giddies and Evelyn consummate this smoldering romance, which has been going on, you have a ticking clock in the background. And you can hear it in this scene. This is where they get together. This brilliant cut that Polanski does. Nicholson smoking a cigarette. Once the music dies down here, listen for the ticking. You hear it? This is an incredible scene because for the first time, it seems that her guard is down. She is open, post-coital. He's closed. He's still a cipher. He doesn't want to have this conversation. He's deflecting. And her moment of openness is, after the fact, something that we realize Giddies could have gotten the information that would have saved him the entire last third of his, his experiences in the film and perhaps saved Evelyn's life because she's open, she's vulnerable. But because he's closed and the ticking clock again in the background, he can't get there. And when the phone rings, you really don't like to talk about she that, shuts down again because she gets the information that the daughter has been found and she begins to obfuscate and cover up, especially when Giddies lets her know that he that he saw her father. What did he say? And and this this acting from Faye Dunaway in the scene is phenomenal. Her her bobbling of like you you saw my f- father like all these little tells are present throughout the film, if you're looking for them, and. The ticking clocks, I think, are such a such a great Polanski touch. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about in relation to that scene is the director, Kimberly Pierce, has such a smart take on this scene. Another thing uh, before I play her that this is one of the things the screenplay does really well. It's it's an important detail to add this kind of. I think a messy human complication that elevates this, this incest story. My father and I, understand, or is it too tough for you? (laughs) 
and she doesn't finish the sentence. She says just enough for it to sink into him and to us. Oh my God. She's talking about that she had a child with her father. And Giddy says, he raped you? And instead of having Evelyn nod a simple, understandable, humanizing affirmative to that question, if you watch this scene again, I think you're going to see that she shakes her head no to the question, he raped you, which does not diminish the horror of Noah Cross violating his own daughter at age 15, as she explains in the film. But it adds another shocking dimension to that act itself. And it's so subtly played that I had to watch it a few times to make sure I wasn't, am I getting it right? I'm still not even 100% sure. I want you to watch it and, and let me know if you agree. Um, it's, it's, it, this is the part of the punch that this film packs. Um, anyway, Kimberly Pierce is, has a, such a great point about the, the way that that one scene changes the entire narrative of the film. I wanted to play a little of her talking about this. It's so smart. I don't know what you are talking about. I, this is the craziest, the most insane thing. Stop it! If you look at the scene, you know, the sister of my daughter, it is such a brilliant, beyond brilliant scene. And having, you know, read the screenplay, um, and then seeing how they directed it and how they acted it, the scene is already great, but the acting and the directing is also great. And therefore, it's so much better. She doesn't know what's coming at her. He doesn't know what's coming at him. And just how long it takes for that information to come out, right? What is it gonna take for Evelyn to finally, finally reveal that secret? And it isn't until she hits the couch, because actually she said, my sister, my daughter, she's my sister, she's my daughter. But when he throws her on the couch and she's down, she comes up and she says, she's my sister and my daughter. And then the power totally shifts because he's been pushing, pushing, pushing her. She gives it up. She's the most vulnerable one. But when she discloses that information, she suddenly is in a position of superiority. Can you get that? It's kind of like her biggest secret, her biggest piece of shame, the thing that she wants to protect so much, it's finally out there. And once it's out, rather than being weaker, it's more like, can a dumb guy like you understand what I've been through? Incredible. I mean, she absolutely nails it. And what an upending of the noir tropes this is, this scene is. And it's phenomenal. This is the stuff that makes this film so superlative. Talk a little bit about the cast. I mentioned Burt Young. I mean, how great has Burt Young been in movies for, what, 60 years? How many appearances has he made in the FCAC universe? How many throwaway roles does he imbue with such great character humor? He is a national cinematic treasure. He should get an honorary Oscar. He's the ultimate that guy. Full respect. Great use of Burt Young in this film. And a great callback to Burt Young when Giddis is trying to lead Escobar on a bit of a wild goose chase in order to give Evelyn and Catherine time to escape. And he reappears at a home and he asks Escobar just for a few minutes to go in and try to bring the girl out himself. And 
we don't know what's going on when a woman with a black eye opens the door. And it's only when Giddis comes into the house and the door is closed to Escobar waiting in the car that we realize we're at Curly's house. The wife has a black eye because Curly confronted her with her infidelity, but they're still together. And this allows Giddis to escape. It's such a great use of Burt Young. Nicholson, of course, I mean, my God, is this the defining Nicholson role? I think so. Um, you know, Nicholson, uh, Fincher points out that, you know, the great Nicholson characters are always like a little ethically or morally compromised, but with a very definite idea of what he will or won't do. And that is so, so demonstrated in this, this role. There's the scene after the, um, after the Mulray affair, Love Nest is exposed. It's in the paper, and uh, Giddis isn't mentioned, but everyone in the barbershop knows that he is the person who caused this information uh, to be uh, to be disclosed, and he's confronted uh, by a fellow patron. Look at that, Barn. Yeah, the heat's mighty. Fools' names and fools' faces. What's that, pal? Nothing. You've got a hell of a way to make a living. Oh? And what do you do to make ends meet? Mortgage department, First National Bank. Tell me, did you foreclose on many families this week? We don't publish a record in the paper, I can tell you that. Neither do I. No, you have your press agent do it. Who is this bimbo, Barney? Is he a regular customer or what? Yeah, listen, pal, I make an honest living. People only come to me when they're in a desperate situation. I help them out. I don't kick families out of their houses like you bums down at the bank, Jake. Can I tell you about the guy who... Maybe you'd like to step down out of the barber chair. Maybe we go outside and discuss it. What do you think? Jake, let me tell you about the guy who got tired of I don't know how that thing got in the newspaper. It was so quick I didn't even know it myself. Make an honest living. Of course you do. Huh? Well, anyway, this story, this guy who got tired of screwing his wife and he said to his friend, An honest do I do? living, so you the understand? Guy says, Why don't you do what the Chinese? This is such a great use of Nicholson. Honest living, you understand? I mean, the simmering uh, moral outrage, which proves to be his undoing, right? It, it, it gives the character a moral center because he's touchy about the fact that he does this matrimonial detective work uh, and it spurs him on to try to do something meaningful, which is to unravel this, this tangled web of power and water usage and land grabbing. He means to do well, but he blunders it and he causes the death of Evelyn rather than solving the mystery. It's also a great use of Nicholson versus the officious twits that appear in the film. The uh, Hall of Records scene is so good where Nicholson is trying to find information out about uh, <laughs> about the people who, who perch, uh, purchased land um, at specific times. And there's this pimply dweeb who... Uh, you know, this is not a lending library, sir. Uh, it's so good. And and also he has this great scene with a fantastic character actress who plays Mulray's secretary. He was expecting you? 
15 minutes ago. Why don't I just go in and wait? Sir. She's so good. And this is the type of person that irritates the Nicholson character. It irritates Giddis in the film. Because, uh, again, the trope of sort of the all-knowing detective who won't be disabused of uh, his mission, he won't be stymied by these officious twits who stand in his way. So when he comes back to see the the twit in charge of the records room. Well, then I'll settle for Los Angeles County. Row 23, section C. Calls him a weasel. I mean, these are just such great uses of Nicholson. And um, it, it causes me to think, you know, we've never, there's never been a movie star like Jack Nicholson. He's such a distinctive, defining presence that when you encounter him, as I did uh, in my episode on Targets, where he appears in the B movie within a movie from his Roger Corman era work, which is how we met Robert Town. Um, it's jarring to see him in these things that you now know to be kind of beneath the talent of an actor like Nicholson. He's such a, a singular type of movie star. I, I, don't, I don't know quite how to describe what it is I'm trying to talk about here. It's like seeing Abraham Lincoln on stage at a Marjorie Taylor Greene rally. Like, what is that doing there in any subpar material previous to him kind of becoming a star? He's so of the era. He's so uh, he's part of this thing that people are talking about in Hollywood, which is linked to things like the Me Too movement and the Polanski situation. You know, the behavior of Hollywood, what's depicted in Babylon, which is set in the 20s and in the 30s in Hollywood, the dawn of the, the talkies and the end of the silent movie era. You know, Hollywood as a lifestyle choice has always been an alternative lifestyle choice. It is something that largely secretly, but not so secretly, allowed people to behave however the hell they wanted, with whomever the hell they wanted. And I think that much of the history of Hollywood is colored by the fact that personal behavior, sexual behavior, self-indulgent behavior, drug use, was all condoned because we are special artists living in a Shangri-La who don't have to play by the same rules that everyone else does. So there's a certain irony in a film like Chinatown being made by people who embody that personal decadence and lack of self-control, certainly Robert Evans, certainly Roman Polanski, Nicholson, uh, Robert Town. I mean, all these people to varying degrees have kind of flagrant moments where their personal behavior causes harm or damage to themselves and the people that are in their family or that love them or around them. And some of this you can chalk up and say, well, you know, it's the 70s, cocaine hits Hollywood. Nobody thought it was addictive. It changed people, maybe. But before that, you know, for all this lionization of Robert Evans and his smooth, silky voice, his home, the parties that he had. I mean, you can also reduce it to he's basically a pimp, okay? 
he procured young girls, would-be actresses for people like his bosses at the studio, his friends. There's a very unsavory side to it that isn't romantic to talk about. And so when these moments of personal behavior erupt into the public sphere, as happened to Polanski in 1975, just a few short years after this film came out, uh, it gets covered like it's some sort of aberration. But I think the reality is, is that it's a more common behavior than anyone really wants to acknowledge. And certainly at that time, the pursuit of young girls, 13, 14, 15 years old, you can read about this. This is coming out now with Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, um, who wrote about a relationship with a girl so young that her parents made him uh, her adoptive parent so he could take her across state lines and not violate the Mann Act. You know, these are things that are going on. And I think the entertainment industry hasn't yet really come to terms with the fact that this is a hypocrisy oftentimes. And so that's all at play here, too. Um, if you look at the film, Jack Nicholson is acting opposite John Huston, who at the time is the father of his girlfriend. And John Huston, who's a rogue and <laughs> certainly had his own tangled web of personal self-indulgent behavior. Um, well, then you have... Angelica Houston, this incredible artist in her own right, and these, these two men in her life are both philandering, allegedly, um, charismatic charmers. And the scene where he's sitting across from Noah Cross and Houston asks him, so avuncularly uh, if he's sleeping with his daughter. It's a conversation freighted in more ways than one. Um, why are you attracting a client like my daughter? Probably. But I'm surprised you're still working for her. Yes, uh, she's suddenly come up with another husband. No. Disturbs me. It makes me think you're taking my daughter for a ride. Financially speaking, of course. What are you charging her? My usual fee. What's the bonus if I get results? Are you uh, sleeping with her? Come, come, Mr. Gift. You don't have to think about that, remember? If you want an answer to that question, Mr. Cross, I'll put one of my men on the job. Good afternoon. So here's another example where the Giddis character is morally offended that this insinuation has been lobbed at him. But this scene is so freighted because of what we know to be true now about the relationship between John Huston and Jack Nicholson, who were two rogues who were charmed and attracted to each other at recognizing like, recognizing like, and Angelica Huston having an attachment to both of these powerful, charismatic, untrustworthy men. It's fascinating when you start to think about all the things that are going on here. And so Giddis is this moral center of a film, and he's the film's moral universe he has that sort of detective thing where he's got a, a broken heart that still beats for justice. He still has a highly developed sense of right and wrong, but 
he is ultimately the instrument which does not save Evelyn Mulray. It causes her death. And uh, it's it's hilarious. Anyway, a couple other cast notes. Um, two funny things. The, you remember in the beginning of the film where Giddis is sitting in the courtroom and it's kind of based on what town, what I told you, town had experience where he went to like a city council meeting and he couldn't believe sort of the overt stuff that was going on in it. Well, in the scene uh, where he's in the courtroom, there's a shepherd who comes in who is meant to portray one of these uh, farmers whose water has been stolen for the growth of Los Angeles. And that farmer is played by Rance Howard. Rance Howard is the father of Ron Howard. And if you look at the scene, you'll see that he looks very much like Ron Howard perhaps uh, looks like now. And the other funny bit of casting is that Giddis has two detective associates. One of the associates is played by Bruce Glover, who is the father of Crispin Glover. And if you look at him in the film, you will recognize him. Uh, he also memorably plays the nature's finest killer, Mr. Wynn. One is never too old to learn from a master, Mr. Kidd. He plays Mr. Wint of Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd uh, in the James Bond film. What is that? Diamonds are forever. He plays Mr. Wint in the James Bond film. And he also plays one of Giddis's associates. John Hillerman is great in the role as the sort of toady second in command at the water company. And of course, Houston who Fincher notes, uh, actually Steven Soderbergh in one of the commentaries notes very accurately that Houston at this point is more of a presence than an actor. And I think this same quality can be seen in Spielberg's use of the director, David Lynch, to perfectly portray, not per se, the late director, John Ford, who he's playing in the scene, opposite the young Spielberg character. He's not portraying John Ford, per se, but he's rather portraying the memory that a young Spielberg had of meeting John Ford, which is very different than playing a real person, if you think about it. They tell me you want to be a picture maker. Um, yes, sir, I do. Why? This business, it'll rip you apart. Well, Mr. Ford, I... So what do you know about art, kid? I love your movies so much. No art. See that painting over there? Uh, yeah. I mean, yes. Yes, I do see it. Walk over to it. Well, what's in it? Describe it. Oh, okay. Um, so there are two guys, and they're on horseback, and they're looking for something, so maybe they're scouting. No. No. Where's the horizon? The, the horizon? Where is it? Uh, it's at the bottom. That's right. Walk over to this painting. Well? Right, okay, so there are five cowboys, you know, they no, could be No, 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 no! Where's the goddamn horizon? Um, it's, it's there. Where? At the top of the painting. All right, get over here. 
Now remember this. When the horizon's at the bottom, it's interesting. When the horizon's at the top, it's interesting. When the horizon's in the middle, it's boring as shit. Now, good luck to you. And get the fuck out of my office. Thank you. My pleasure. That is a phenomenal scene in The Fablemans, which I've raved about here in a few episodes in a row. If you haven't seen that, please go see it in the theater. It's so good. And that's part of the brilliance of the casting. Um, okay, I just want to talk a little bit about the score. Um, as we mentioned, this theme... so evocative a lot of people talk about what a kind of bold choice it was to use a trumpet here instead of a saxophone which is maybe the more common choice certainly in the over a love scene but that there's a certain mournful quality that a trumpet has that a saxophone doesn't And the vibrato and the sliding pitch. This is just so spot on. It's just an incredible piece of music from Jerry Goldsmith. And with all of that lyricism, you also have this much darker piano theme. incredible you're going to see in a minute how some of this percussive stuff actually comes from the original score which was discarded the original composer was a guy named philip lambro who hadn't really done film scores before this his music is amazing uh, but apparently just did not go over well with screener audiences this is his main theme It's much darker, it's much more modern. I think it's amazing music, but so you see here using the saxophone as expected, it still has that kind of 20s orchestral feel, but it's much more surreal. It's more hallucinogenic in a way. So this original uh, Philip Lambro score, you know, it's one of those things. Everyone loved it until the audience told them not to. And then, of course, everyone raced to be the first to abandon poor Philip Lambro, and no one wanted to do it directly to his face. Uh, but Nicholson was a fan. Uh, Polanski was a fan. Evans was a fan until he wasn't. 
And at one of the initial screenings, um, the audience really, really reacted negatively to this score, which was probably a bit ahead of its time. And so they dumped Lambro uh, 10 days before the film was set to premiere. <laughs> and Jerry Goldsmith, who, you know, did a bajillion movies, there's an anecdote that Evans showed up at Goldsmith's door, having never met him, and said, Jerry, I need you to save my life. And he talked Goldsmith into writing a score, uh, which when you compare on YouTube, you can listen to both scores and you can see that basically what Jerry did was since the film had already been spotted, the music had already been placed and inserted in its appropriate places. He kind of went through and he did his versions of cues that had already been uh, composed uh, by the previous composer. So it's easy to compare his version of the music that's over the little Mexican kid riding the Swayback horse versus Philip Lambro's version of that. It would be fascinating if someone cut Lambro's score into a cut of the movie on YouTube so that we could kind of experience the movie with his score. I wonder if it would have aged better than it played at the time. One of the funny things that Fincher gets into is he hits town with this... Um, it's not a conspiracy, but it's sort of a, it's, it's a thing that I guess film, some film nerds have uh, obsessively believed to be true, which is that there is a motif throughout Chinatown of two objects which are similar, um, but one is flawed. And Fincher runs through the extant universe of of these things. So for example, there are the watches, the stopwatches that Nicholson uses to time when Mulray leaves the beach by running over a stopwatch. He can tell what time the watch was run over. So you have a watch that you, you see a stopwatch that works, that isn't destroyed. And then next to it, you see one that is destroyed. Uh, you have the same thing with Cross's glasses. You have a pair that isn't destroyed and you have the pair that is broken because it was dropped into the uh, title pool. When the Giddis character is attacked in the orange grove by the Okies, uh, his sunglasses, he's, one lens is missing, the other one is on. Evelyn's taillights on her Packard, he breaks the red glass on one taillight so that she's easy to follow. So you have the, the working taillight and you have the broken taillight. His nostrils, he has two nostrils, one is functional, the other is slit. You have uh, Evelyn Mulray's eyes. He notices a flaw in her iris. One eye is intact. The other one has a flaw. Uh, even the sister-daughter can be considered a pair. One is flawed. One is the product of this horrific liaison. The Florsheim shoes. He loses one of his shoes when he's escaping uh, the onrush of water while trespassing on water company property and uh, on and on and on. So, so these are things and, and town listens to this and he goes, that's incredible. I've never heard that. Uh, it was never discussed. Uh, he does acknowledge that he was after some bit of leitmotif in the flawed iris thing. But other than that, he says it's totally accidental. I think it's pretty funny. Anyway, I want to finish up with just a few interesting comments about the film from some smart people, Steven Soderbergh, the cinematographer, Roger Deakins. Um, I played you that, that uh, Kimberly, um, Kimberly Pierce thing, which was, which was so smart. These are just some smart takes on sort of what uh, 
some things that are great about the film. Here's, here's Soderbergh on encountering the film in a number of different ways, which I really responded to. The great thing about Chinatown is that even if you see it at an early age like I did, on the, on the superficial level, it's, it's very engaging and very entertaining. It's a murder mystery. And so there's plenty there just to keep you focused, even if you're at an age where you can really only keep one thing in your head at a time. That's a great point, I think, because that's how I experienced it first, you know, uh, as a teenager, as a kid. And I had no awareness or no ability to sort of appreciate any of the things that I now see are going on in the filmmaking. Uh, Roger Deakins, he's such an engaging and brilliant cinematographer, has a great podcast if you're interested in cinematography. Uh, he and his wife and his son uh, talk, uh, talk very, very intelligently about films and filmmaking. Anyway, here's him uh, pointing out some things that I think if you, if you watch some of the making of featurettes, it really will lend an appreciation to maybe what otherwise would be throwaway transitional moments in the film. To me, the most impressive thing about the movie is, is not only the complexity of the script and the way it's told, obviously, but the way the, the connections between the scenes, the linking shots, the, the way it's cut, the pacing, you know, just simply watching establishing shots. Everything there is like, it's, it adds to the pace and the whole sort of brooding feel of the movie. It's a wonderful shot where he drives up to the house where Faye Dunaway and the butler have got the girl hidden and it's night. And they've got the shot of the house and the car goes right in front of the camera. And then Giddies gets out and the camera just drifts over the bonnet and see the house again. And it's, I mean, it's so simple, but it's a gorgeous shot and adds so much mood just to what is a little a transition, really. So, so true. And, and we'll give you a lot of appreciation for the genius of Polanski's direction. Really? Here's well, Soderberg. he's the master of motivated camera movement. And, you know, it really is instructive to see how he breaks scenes down because he doesn't do coverage in the traditional sense. And the camera moves more often than not, you don't even notice. There are several really long takes in the film with multiple destination camera moves in them, you don't even really notice them because they're keying off the blocking of the actors. That's a real clinic in sort of being simple, but it's a simplicity that comes from knowing how to do everything and therefore knowing what you need to strip away. That to me is one of the most foundationally essential aspects to really appreciate Polanski's filmmaking. Because that sense of, and everyone in the making of this film talks about in, in Wasson's book and in all the making of featurettes, I mean, Polanski knew how to do every job on a film set um, and was very collaborative, but also has that thing where he has a vision in his mind of how it should be. And if you were right about something, he would accept that. But if your argument was not persuasive, he would remain fixated on his way of doing things. But that concept that Soderbergh so so um, eloquently spells out, which is a simplicity which comes from knowing how to do everything and thus understanding what you can strip away to get to the essence of a shot is incredible. And I just wanted to speak again about Faye Dunaway's performance, which all of these times that I've watched it in preparation here, it's, it's, 
It's an astounding performance. I understand from reading all of these materials that a lot of her experiences on set were not positive. You can notice that, interestingly, she's the only key cast member who's not featured in any of these making of featurettes, which were done in 2009. I don't think she had a great experience making the film. Um, I think we have a bit of that double standard where difficult behavior from male actors is one thing, but a female actor who is paying attention in a way that maybe the men on the set aren't to important character things like her makeup and her hair, how she looks on camera, gets perceived as difficult behavior. Whereas what she's doing is contributing in some small or large part to why her performance works. Now, I read a bit in Wasson's book that in the editing, um, they elevated her performance because a lot of her flustery movements, a lot of her ticky kind of uh, acting stuff in repeated takes, it was kind of hard at first for them to see a cohesive performance. But when they made the right choices, which were there because she had made the choices in multiple takes, when they elevated the correct choices and cut them all together, excuse me by knocking the microphone, it elevated and created this incredible sustained performance of withholding and ultimate disclosure. And it is a tour de force performance. It's, it's insane that she didn't win an Academy Award for this. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the awards. It was, it was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, but we'll talk in a second about, about why it only won one. But Faye Dunaway's performance is astounding. Having said that, is it Nicholson that I somehow, I don't want to say is lacking in the film because it's a great performance. It's a sustained performance. He's in, as I said, every single scene of the film, which is hard to do. Um, but there is perhaps the adherence to the truth of the character as envisioned by town, Nicholson, Polanski at all. Does it keep us at a remove necessarily because to be inside a little bit more would perhaps give away something that can't be given away until that final ultimate scene? Forget it, Jake. It's Chinatown. The shock of that. Is that a, a, a necessary arm's length that somehow has to be there in order for this whole complicated ticking clock mechanism of a plot and of a film to unfold the way Polanski wants it to. I don't know. But for example, when he plays Garrett Breedlove uh, for James L. Brooks, you know, opposite Shirley MacLaine, um, there's so much heart there in a similarly funny kind of controlled performance. There's more heart there, though. Like you can connect to the heart of the character in a way that you really can't with Jake Giddies. And I don't know if that's a flaw of the film per se, because this film may be more so maybe all Polanski's films are a bit this way. Like Rosemary's Baby is this way, too, in its chilly appraisal of human behavior and American human behavior, particularly there's a necessary distance 
because it's the distance of this Polish emigre Holocaust survivor who is looking at this society and just laughing at the things we're hung up on, at the excess, at the abuse of personal and professional powers. Maybe that's what it is. I'm not sure. But I am left a little bit in watching the film four or five times as I did to prepare for this to have to say that there's something of this type of film, which I typically love, which is that heartbroken, detective, mournful, comp, that, that stuff that's so present in the soundtrack. There's a bit of it missing somewhere, and I don't know where. And maybe it has to be missing in the ways that I talked about. I'm not sure. So the aftermath of the film um, <laughs> was kind of is such a great um, uh, analogy towards where America was heading post Watergate, right? So we've, we, we lose faith and trust in these most sacred of institutions through Watergate. And in the same way, this was a high watermark. It was a high watermark for Paramount. It was a high watermark for Evans as the head of the studio. A year after the film would be released and garner 11 Academy Award nominations, Evans is deposed as the studio chief because of his own personal behavior and perhaps descendants into further drug use. Um, his continued uh, war with Frank Yablons and his irritation of Charles Bludorn was uh, ultimately too much for Bludorn and the studio to take. And Evans burned fast and bright, but he burned out. And uh, he asked one thing of Charlie when Charlie fired him, which was, please let me appoint my successor. And he asked Charles Bludorn to replace him with Dick Silbert, uh, the production designer, who had a brief period at the top in kind of a times they are a changing moment with some success. It was Dick Silbert who oversaw films like the bad news bears, which we've done on the pod with my friend, Bernie Kaminsky, Nashville, Altman's great film, days of heaven, Terrence Malick before being replaced himself in 1978. And in, in, in an incredible bit of uh, Hollywood screenwriting taking place in real life, a junior executive forced on Silbert was a guy named Don Simpson. And Don Simpson had very different ideas about filmmaking than the urbane, New York, witty, cultured Dick Silbert. Don Simpson would come to represent the changing tides of Hollywood filmmaking and business. Dick Silbert was of the old school. Don Simpson was of the new school. And when he forged a partnership with fellow producer Jerry Bruckheimer, the two of them would go on to do things like Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, and really change the business of Hollywood forever. As for Polanski, that story is pretty well known. It's not something I can do justice to here, um, but he's not stepped foot in the United States after becoming a fugitive in 1978. If you are interested in a more detailed version of the events that transpired after he had sex with a 13-year-old girl at Jack Nicholson's house while Jack was away in Aspen, you can watch the documentary Roman Polanski Wanted and Desired, uh, or you can Google any of his uh, victim, Samantha Geimer's more recent statements and interviews. She did a thing with 60 Minutes Australia recently, which is probably her most recent summation of her feelings on the matter. Uh, there's a bit in the book that gets into why he fled, which I wasn't aware of prior to kind of reading the book. Um, 
and I think they get into it in the documentary as well, which is that his original sentence uh, negotiated with Geimer's attorneys and the prosecutor uh, was that he would be sentenced to 90 days uh, analysis at a prison hospital for to, to ascertain whether he was sort of a sexual deviant or not, and that he completed 45 days of that and was released. And the blowback on the judge who had approved this, uh, who was sort of a, is described as an attention-seeking uh, judge of dubious quality in some of these materials, uh, apparently thought better of the fact that he was being eviscerated in the press for going too lightly on Polanski. And so he called the uh, prosecutor and the uh, defense attorneys together and to hear them tell it. And you can read this in their own words in Wasson's book and watch these documentaries where they get into this in great detail. Basically, he proposed kind of a cockamamie, let me cover my ass and take me at my word that I'm going to sentence him to this long jail sentence so that people get off my back. But once he's in jail, don't worry, um, you'll file an appeal and uh, it'll it'll get approved and then your guy will get out and everybody wins. And basically, as Polanski's lawyer was talking this over with him and with Geimer's attorneys who were similarly kind of appalled that this judge was proposing something essentially, uh, I don't want to use the word corrupt, but it was, it, it wouldn't hold water and it wasn't something you could rely upon. These were the circumstances that caused Polanski to say, okay, I'll see you guys later. And he got up and he left, he left the country in 1978 because he didn't feel that he could trust the judicial system to not throw him in jail for 50 years in order to uh, protect the judge from the blowback. So anyway, this is a whole detailed story that you can read and get into in these other things, which um, is still ongoing for Polanski. And the way that he and Samantha Geimer have been linked together through this is such a fascinating aspect of, again, Hollywood and the Times and the Me Too movement. Um, and it's, a, it's fascinating and disturbing and it's ongoing. As for Robert Town, he um, suffered a bit of his own descent into the type of late 70s madness that many people, I think, experienced after that flush of the 60s. He had a bitter divorce. He had a custody battle. Um, but he is still around. He's 88 years old, and he's still active and working. And of course, after a tortured period of development, and despite Nicholson's best intentions to provide much-needed lifelines at the time for Robert Town and Robert Evans with his film, The Two Jakes, the sequel to Chinatown flopped and forever canceled the chances that Nicholson and Town would be able to complete the third part of what they saw as a three-part film series about Los Angeles corruption. The second film would take place 11 years after the events in the first film, which takes place in 1937. So the second film would be 1948, and Giddies would be back from World War II. Um, I don't recall making it through the two Jakes. I think it, I think I got through 10 or 15 minutes and just, wow. Um, but it would have perhaps been interesting had circumstances been a bit different to see that film come together. And of course, Nicholson himself would become one of the biggest movie stars of them all in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. And he was last uh, on screen in 2010. I think he's 85 himself. Um, so it seems that he may be done with acting. But this story continues to live on. I saw that Fincher and I think Ben Affleck were attached perhaps to a 
uh, adaptation of Wasson's book or the making of Chinatown. We'll see if they do something like that. There's a pretty slim track record of those things turning out positively, but I suppose there's always a chance. So with that, I will leave you uh, to go and rewatch Chinatown. Thanks again, as ever, for giving a listen to the Full Cast and Crew podcast. And I will talk to you next time.